Jesus has just come off the Mount of Transfiguration. So many things, so many variables within that story that we, we talked through. And Jesus, Peter, James, and John have just come off of the hill according to the book of Luke. They find this very strange scene uh, playing out in front of them. And it's a story that's taught many times. It's been well taught. And some of what I do tonight will just be a review. But let's begin reading in Mark chapter 9. I'm going to read this from Mark. It's also recorded in Matthew and recorded in Luke. But the more thorough story is found in Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them. And the scribes were questioning them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered, says, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, who has a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he takes him, he tears at him. And he foams and gnashes with his teeth and pines away. And I, and I spake to the disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was coming to the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing, but by prayer and by fasting. Lord, we come to you with this fascinating reality of your life before us. I pray, Lord, that we would understand from this what you would have us to understand, and that we would accept it, that it would ring as truth in our ears, and we would believe what you're telling us here. So we speak it openly. We believe, Lord, the truth of your revelation. And I pray, Lord, that this truth would find a home within us. We speak it in Jesus' name. Amen. So back to verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes were questioning. The day when they came down off of the Mount of Transfiguration, this, when this actually occurs, as I said, he found the other nine disciples, three were with him, and he found the other nine that he had left behind, surrounded by a crowd, and the unusual thing about it was that the scribes were there, the religious leaders were there, and they were questioning these nine. And probably the questioning, knowing 
the attitudes and the purposes was probably to ridicule them. And Jesus, at this point, didn't know, but he could tell that the scribes were probably taunting the disciples and probably about their inability to do what the Father asked. So Jesus came down, saw what was going on, and then this unusual phrase in verse 15, and straightway, immediately, all the people, didn't say a few, all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed and running to him, saluted him. So what we do know is that when Jesus came down off the Mount of Transfiguration, that there was something still about his appearance. There was something so physically evident about what had happened in this encounter just a few hours earlier, probably at night. He came down in the morning, and they could still see something about him that was so recognizable that they could do nothing but run to him. And as they ran to him, they saluted him, which means that word salute is not the formal salute. It means to draw. They were drawn to him. So how strange this picture must have been for this crowd to be gathered around the nine. They saw Jesus, and because of what they saw, they began to run to him. And they were drawn to him and recognized and greeted him in his coming. And it's kind of interesting. I do believe, and I can't say exactly what this looks like, that an encounter with Jesus should change our physical look. I think that we should not be surprised that to walk into the presence, to walk with the presence of the one who's a healer, a one who is a restorer of life, one who is the Lion of Judah, who walks at our side, for us to come to an understanding that we just met him. There should be an outward evidence that something powerful had happened to us inwardly. When we talked last week about transfiguration, that meant Jesus began to basically glow. His face was like the sun and his clothes were so white it says that no one could have washed him to be that way. But the, the word transfiguration means that something had happened on the inside of Jesus that was now radiating out of him. I still believe that's true. And one of the things that Jesus makes very clear in his teaching about whether we know that we're saved or not is that the life that we live after salvation will match salvation itself. It ought to make many question, at least go back and review, that salvation experience that they had. Jesus made it very clear that if you enter into the narrow gate, then you're going to walk according to a way that looks just like it. So there should be an, a, a visible evidence that something inside us had changed. You know, when you have that encounter, it doesn't mean that we live perfectly. It doesn't mean that, that everything we do is right. It means that we, there's always the presence of God. No matter how far we've drifted, where we've gone, there's always that loving hand of God by the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us home. Always bringing us home. Sometimes it happens quickly. Sometimes it happens later, but I can tell you, there's a visible, physical evidence that God has touched you. I believe that with all my heart. So Jesus comes down, they recognize something about him that is powerfully different, and they begin to go to him, but in the midst of all of that attention, Jesus could have, in in his humanity, like like we would have possibly done, taken a moment to just take in the moment and glory or revel in the moment because of the attention. 
because here he was coming down off this great moment. And actually, when you realize what Peter wanted to do when he, when he offered to make the tabernacles and he was actually rebuked on the Mount of Transfiguration because he was going to make a tabernacle for Jesus and one for, one for Moses and one for Elijah because he didn't really want to come down back to this. He didn't want to come back to the reality of what was going on. He had a desire to stay where he was, and I guess in some realms I couldn't blame him. They come back down, and Jesus is in the midst of all this attention, but he paid no attention because he wanted to know what the scribes were asking. But he's honed in, what were you asking him? And he gets the question out, and he says, and he asks the scribes, what question you with them? So he wanted to know immediately, what was it that they were asking? And before they could, anybody could respond, before the scribes could respond, or before the disciples could respond, this individual stepped out of the crowd, and uh, it just says he's one of the multitude, and he answers and says, Master, I have brought unto you my son. It actually says in Luke, my only son. So this father had one son, and it says he has a dumb spirit. So basically what has happened, this is stuff that you have to recognize comes from God, comes from the Father. Because it would be very difficult for us to say every time I'm sick that I've got a demon, that I'm demon-possessed. Now I will tell you that all sickness is a result. Because there wasn't any until you know, sin entered and now there is, so we can clearly say that our being sick is a result of rebellion but I could not say specifically and would never say specifically that if you're sick, you're demon-possessed. That would be ridiculous, so don't, don't let that confuse you in this teaching. But Jesus knew what was happening to this young boy, which many would have diagnosed as epilepsy, even in that day, would have diagnosed it as some neurological that was happening that was causing him to do this. Jesus in this moment already knew the difference that this was not something that was happening internally. This was something that had him possessed. And he recognized the difference. And I can tell you one of the things that's happened within the Christian church is that we don't deal with anything hardly as demonic. We rationalize and talk about many things, but I want to tell you that there are occasions like this still happening in the church very abrupt and amazing moments when you actually realize I'm dealing with a demon right in front of me. And I don't want to glorify them. I don't want to do anything. I want to know exactly what to do to get rid of them. I don't want to have conversations with them. I don't want to be threatened by them. I want to know what to do to get rid of them. And that's what the Lord has made very clear. And we read these and we study these so that we'll know exactly what to do when something happens in front of us. And we recognize, as Jesus did here, that this was demonic. That what was happening to this young man was not something that was not an illness he had. He was possessed. And the father already knew it. The father came and he was asking to the disciples, can you cast this one out? He said, I brought my only child to you. And he says he's, the result of this spirit had left him where he couldn't. He was deaf and dumb. That was the effect of the spirit that was on him. 18. Wheresoever he takes him. He tears him and he foams and gnashes with his teeth and he pines away. So it means he became withered when these times would come. He, he would fold up like he was dried up and he was paralyzed. And again, it's described a little differently in Luke chapter 9. He's, in, he's also in Matthew, he's called a lunatic because that, certainly that would have been a label that would have been assigned to him. 
So Luke kind of gives a, a different picture. So the spirit would take him, he would cry out, it would tear at him, he would foam, he would bruise him, and then depart and leave him in that state. And the father says, and I spake in verse 18, at the end, I spake to the disciples that they should cast him out, and they couldn't. Why do most of us not want to deal on a level where we deal with demonic things? Because most of us don't render ourselves or consider ourselves adequate to be able to do it. It sounds terrifying. And isn't that a little bit strange? That we would be terrified of someone that Jesus has already defeated. The Jesus who lives in us, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Christ, when he announced from the cross, it is finished, Satan's doom was complete. His sentence was assigned. And he was totally 100% defeated. And then to, on top of that, after that defeat was so certain, he sent us the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we would never have to live with the spirit of fear. Matter of fact, he says, I didn't give you a spirit of fear, but I gave you a spirit of power and authority. So it's, it seems a little odd that as, as a church member, as a Christian, as someone who said, I believe in Jesus Christ and he lives in me, that I would fear dealing with something that's demonic. If we fear it, we've assigned it power that it truly doesn't have. We've assigned it something that is not true. And, it, and again, where does Satan get his power since God didn't give him any? He gets it from us. He borrows it from us. Because Jesus made it very clear. I taught him this recently. He says, all power has been given to me. And then he says in John, and by the way, I have given what I have to you. So we have all power. If he's going to get any, it's going to come out of our fear or our doubt. That's where he gains his power. It's not easy. I would never say that. That it's easy to deal with it. We should never be fearful when asked to or called to or faced with it. I listen you know, to Bill Johnson from time to time. I don't listen as much as I used to because I don't have time, but I love Bill Johnson's teaching on dealing with the demonic. He's very much what I said earlier. He says, I, I don't want to mess with them. I don't want to have conversations. I don't want to name them by name. All I want to do is to be able to speak in the authority of God and tell them to get out and deal with them and go on. They're in the way. And I'm not going to focus on them. I'm just going to deal with them when they're, when they're in front of me. I love that perspective. We're building a kingdom. And the building of that kingdom will advance on the gates of hell. And from time to time, we're going to have to deal with it. But I'm not out here fighting demons. I'm building a kingdom. And we can lose our focus very quickly if we begin to focus there. He asked the disciples, those nine, to do it, and they couldn't. I'm not going to go back there, but it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, it's three chapters back, that Jesus had given them power, you remember when he sent them out, to deal with unclean spirits. But they couldn't do it here. He'd given them authority to. He'd spoken very clearly before. So why couldn't they? So let's go on to verse 19. And he answered him and said, Oh, faithless generation. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of conversation in, in the Christian world about to whom was Jesus speaking. Was he speaking to the scribes who was making fun of the disciples? Was he speaking to the Father? Or was he speaking to these nine disciples who for some reason couldn't do this? My assessment is, yes, if the truth is relevant, he was speaking to all of them, which includes you and I today. 
Most likely he was, he was answering the Father, but addressing the disciples that were with him. Faithless, it says in, in the other chapters, other books, and perverse or perverted generation. He says, how long shall I be with you? So what does it say? From that moment, it, it implies some level of impatience. So if Jesus is going to say that, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? What does the impatience imply? It at least implies this, that at this point of their teaching, at this point of him sending them out, of him giving them authority over demons, he's saying at this point, it's not unreasonable for me to expect you to be performing to be acting at a level reasonable enough that could have dealt with this. And I wonder, it, it certainly at least brings to my mind what he thinks about us. You know, I'm 59 years old. I've been a Christian for 51 years. What should my 51 years add up to? What expectation does God have for me after having the full revelation of God for 51 years, have, having access to God for 51 years, being able to pray to God for 51 years, to develop an understanding of God, wisdom of God, knowledge of God from this book, being able to hear his voice for 51 years, what would be a reasonable expectation for me within his kingdom? After all of your years, after your history, after what you've experienced, after your encounter with Jesus when he saved you, after the time you've had in God's word, all the things that you have, what is the reasonable expectation of God? And do you think that he might be slightly impatient with you? You know, everything you have, everything I've taught you, every step that you've come, you are perfectly capable of dealing with some things. Instead, we're standing in the middle of a crowd trying to answer questions. That's why we couldn't. I don't know what God's expectation of me is, as having been a believer for 51 years. But I believe he ought to at least expect me to be able to talk to someone about him, share his love, be able to, to show the kindness, understand the work of the indwelling spirit, to recognize that he has made me a soldier in a battle, that I'm part of a kingdom, that I stand in the spirit with you. There's a lot of things that he ought to be able to expect me to know after 51 years. To be able to walk and not grow weary. To be able to pray without distraction. To be able to love him and to love the people around and demonstrate the, how he loves me by the overflow as, as I love you and others. That's not an unreasonable expectation. That when someone speaks the truth, I ought to be able to receive it and be able to absorb it and let it become part of my life. And Jesus, you know, he's, he's walked with these guys and he's come down off this mountain. He sees them in the middle of this crowd and they're in a debate so instead of demonstrating power, they do what we do. We start talking about it. May not act on it, but we can sure have a conversation about it. So he answers them and says, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? So it does imply some impatience that he has with those around him. I wrote this in my notes, and it was because faith, sufficient for curing this child, was to be expected of his disciples. Not knowledge, not experience, not a history. What was the real issue here? Why could they not do it? In my notes, it was because faith sufficient for curing this youth was to be expected of the disciples. If it was going to be a question of faith, who were they misunderstanding? 
They were looking at the child. They were understanding the severity of what they were facing. But who was it that they were misunderstanding? They were misunderstanding God and his power. The kind of faith by now, after they'd seen what he had done, saw the miracles, touched people's lives, gone out on their own, came back and testified of lives changed, of miracles performed at their hands. By this time, they had handed out all the bread and loaves. They knew what they were doing. They'd seen Jesus walking on the water by this time, miracle after miracle. Even after all that they had seen, they still couldn't understand how to access the power of God and bring the power of God into this moment. And I want to tell you, if there's anything crippling the church, it's because we still don't know how to do that. We still don't know how to access what God says, by faith you access, and because you can access it by faith, I will be faithful to respond. We're still not a whole lot better at understanding how to bring the power of heaven into somebody's story. But even worse, we're not able to understand the power of heaven into our own life and receive it. Because we haven't moved much from the time of our conversion we haven't moved much from our understanding, from our wisdom, from our faith, from, which is given as a gift to us of our love and our understanding of God. And we're still almost as powerless, almost as crippled, walking as slowly as we have ever walked, even though we've been Christians for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years. And Jesus is saying the problem that you're having is not whether you're looking at the child and seeing the size of the problem. You're not looking into my face and understanding the size of my power. I wrote in the notes again, and because they should by that time have got rid of the perversity in which they had been reared, that Jesus exposes them thus before the rest. He's saying by this time, those things that you had once learned, those things that had limited you, that perversity should have already been eliminated and your mind and your heart switched so that you find yourself in agreement with the Father, knowing him, understanding him, and being able to appropriate him into somebody else's story but you're still listening to the old voices. Please listen to this. So many of our personal problems, so many of our personal issues that still are ambushing us day after day after day is because we're still, we're still functioning in the perversity. I'm not talking about our typical use of the word perverse. I'm talking about going back and trusting old thinking. That's what he's describing is the perversity. You're trusting old thinking when I have established something brand new. Listen to me. Understand me. The Father from heaven has just said to these disciples, this is my son. Listen to him. Hear him. And we seem very stuck. And Jesus says, bring him to me. And they brought him unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tore him. And he fell on the ground and, and wallowed, foaming. Kind of strange that still Jesus does nothing but kept talking to the father of this boy. I mean, this is playing out in front of Jesus. Is at his feet that this spirit is tearing at this child. And Jesus is still standing here questioning the father. Do you think that, was, that would have been a strange scene? Maybe a little bit in our mind, in our processing, because we would have concluded, well, you know, hurry and help him. Well, first of all, the faith that Jesus had in the father that was going to do what he was fixing to do could not be hurried. Because timing for God is as important as what happened in itself. So Jesus is not anxious for a moment that if he doesn't hurry, that God's not going to do it in, the, in his due time. So he continues to ask the Father. He just kept talking. Verse 21. And he asked his Father, how long is this ago since this came unto him? And he said, it came as a child. And then the Father says, this is the most unusual thing. This is where most of the sermons end. 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This is typical 2014 church. Most of us stand before the Father and says, if you could just do something. Just help me. If you could just do something. And what's Jesus' answer? Wait a minute, you, cannot, you really have this backwards. Because you're asking the one who can do absolutely everything, if I'm capable, then would you do something? And you're, asking, you're, and you're also playing the compassion card and saying, if you have compassion, would you do something? And Jesus is very quick. I don't think he was ugly, I don't think he was sharp, and I don't think he was rude. But I think he addressed the reality for the Father very quickly based on the way the Father responds. 23, Jesus said unto him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. When we read this in the book of Luke, it goes on a little further. It says, and Jesus says, if you, you, if you have the, the faith that's the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, to move and it'll move. When we hear stuff like that, our mind just goes to zero. It's like, I don't believe that for a second. I may believe that it says it, and I may believe that Jesus intended it, but he did not intend that for that to be me. I will not assess myself on that kind of a term, that I could actually have that kind of faith, that I could say to a mountain, move, and it would move. So most of us, immediately upon hearing that kind of of an example, dial it all the way to zero and say, I don't understand this because I know that's not true. I don't even understand faith like that. He either said it and we believe it, or he didn't intend it. I just happen to believe he intended it. Verse 24, and straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I wish the church, not this church, I wish the church around the world would cry out, help thou my unbelief. Because something was going on in that father at this moment that is rare, truly, truly rare. The fact that the man responded the way he did started with this, I'm willing to own my own unbelief. Again, I don't know if we realize how rare that is. But this father in this moment was willing to say, the problem here is not God. The problem here is not the people around me. The problem here is is not my son. The problem here is not that demon. I guarantee he would have, if you ask him what's your problem, well, this is my son. Well, he's willing to say before the father, my problem is not this demon. My problem is not my son in this critical condition. My son is, and my problem is not the scribes who are picking on these disciples and accusing them when they couldn't do it. That's not my problem. And I want to tell you, it takes a, a mighty person to remove all of those things and say the problem is me. It's my unbelief and to own the reality before the Father because until there's that kind of ownership, there will never be a change in us. What an unusual character this was for him to say, help them my unbelief. He owned the reality of what was going on in front of him was not whether Jesus could do something, was not whether God was compassionate or not, or did God care, or does God see me, or does God even know what's going on? Does God know that I'm being tormented? Does God even care that I'm being tormented? And, and when Jesus said what he said, all of a sudden within, within that statement, everything shifted and the Father owned the reality of what was happening in front of him. What a mighty place the church would be if we would just own the fact that it's my unbelief. 
It's my lack of willingness to come before God and to listen to him, to hear him in the spirit and to be able to stand and confess. This is what God has done. This is what God has said. This is the provision that God has shown. This is the testimony of what God has done. And to be able to stand and share it and to tell it and to mean it because we believe it. He owned it. That was the first and most amazing thing about this father. And then the second says the appeal to Christ for help against his felt unbelief was that he recognized in that statement what he owned, but in that same testimony, he's recognizing what God could do. Two powerful things. He owned his own unbelief, and even through that, it was a very strange and almost foreign to that day, but recognizing the reality of a power in Christ more glorious than they had ever imagined. They saw him coming down off that mountain. They saw something about Jesus they'd never seen before. Even those nine disciples had to be shocked when they saw Jesus coming, and they saw him still radiating from the day before, the night before, something so visible that they could connect with it. Something was going on so powerful that they couldn't even imagine the glory that was now becoming evident. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, verse 26, and he came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. The very faith which Christ declared to be enough for everyone has now been shown. And the cause of the problem again yields to true power. Every single time, I promise you. When we will correctly look at what God is doing in front of us, it says here very clearly, very plainly, the faith which we have in Jesus is every day enough and in all things enough to come against the problem, the malady which has crippled us. It's so strange that we have people who are delivered and delivered and delivered and delivered and delivered and delivered. Starting again, starting again. Randy, I'm coming and I'm, it's all over. It's different for me now. And in three weeks, Randy, I'm coming. It's all different for me now. What are we incorrectly assessing? What are we missing? We go on in the story. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And they asked him, why could we not cast him out? Why couldn't we do it? He had given them power before. And he said unto them, this kind came forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. Self-preparation, prayer. Self-denial, fasting. What was the magic about those two things? I don't want us to misunderstand this. Because Jesus is not saying, if you fast and if you pray, you can do it. He says, this kind came forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. He's saying there's a connection, but you can't pray and fast and be able to do this. What will the prayer and the fasting do that will allow you to do it? Hear God. It puts you in a position to where your heart will be so attuned, being able to understand an authority. All he's saying is the prayer and fasting is going to so connect you spiritually with the Father that when you say to this kind of a demon, get out, never come back, that you will not waver, not because of the demon, not because of the size of the demon, but because of your intimacy with the Father. You don't want to do battle with demons if you don't have an intimacy with the Father. You have to know that when I say by the authority of Jesus Christ in this matter, get out. There has to be a certainty and a resolve that comes from self-preparation and, you, and a confidence and a knowledge that you have that what, when you say it, it's going to happen. A couple of years ago, got a call from a lady and 
that, that her granddaughter was just in an awful situation, got there, and she's doubled up on the couch. And when we got over, there was another pastor there. Because sometimes you just need assistance with things that are going on in the house. So immediately, the, the, the house was very busy. And said, we've got to get everybody out of here. Because first of all, when demon leaves, you don't want that demon stopping. Got the room clear. Got the house clear. I told the, the grandmother, this is what's fixing to happen. I said, I want to pray. And whatever's got her bound is fixing to leave. The key is not whether I can do it. The key is whether you're going to believe that this is actually going to happen or not. It has nothing to do with me. It has your ability to believe whether God can actually do what I'm fixing to say. I just leaned over and began to pray. And I began to realize very quickly that she was fiercely fighting pain. And I began to pray for her and immediately just began to get calm. She just got quiet. And I prayed what God gave me to pray and the authority that he gave me to pray it. And after four or five minutes and the prayer was over, she was just lying on the couch perfectly fine, calm, nothing going on. Got up, no problem. It was amazing to watch it. If you're not fighting fear, this is very different. There's so much of this that happens in dealing with the confidence, not in me. I had no confidence in me. Not every confidence in the world. The minute I speak Jesus' name, we're, we're fixing to deal with something. Speaking his name will do it. You speak in faith, believing that when you speak his name, something powerful is going to happen. Something powerful happens. You have authority. When people talk to me about having in their house, and this happens from time to time, that they have in their house a dark shadow or a dark spot or a cold spot, you know what you're dealing with. And sometimes they'll ask me, will you come? And I, Absolutely, I'll come. And I'll bring people if I feel like I need to bring people. But the reality is I would much rather you have the authority to speak to that and tell it to get out. Because you're going to live there every day and just tell it, get out. You have no business here. Get out. And guess what? It has to get out. You speak the name of Jesus. There's no profound word. There's no script. The name of Jesus. Get out. And they have to leave. Jesus' response stopped everything in its tracks. Jesus' answer had the ability to stop the spirit in his torment. Jesus, in his response, had the ability to bring the Father to this great question. Jesus, in his response, had the power to bring total transformation to this young boy who's now appeared dead, and Jesus touches him, and he's alive, and they're on their way. I wish we would believe that that's never changed. He's still very much about this business, still touching, still loving, still healing, still bringing relief, still saving. All the things that we read about him doing, he still lovingly does. He's saying, this can't be done, though, unless there's effort and intent. Some of us look to God and say, God, do something. And God is saying, it's not whether I can do something. It's will you put feet to the prayer you just spoke? Will you walk what I just gave you? Will you live what I just told you? This happens because there's effort and intent. And most of us as Christians are lacking both. We may have effort, but the clarity of our intent often wavers. They were all amazed at the power of God, at his majesty, at his might. They just saw something very divine and something very grand in the person that they knew to be Jesus.